Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And the word of the Lord reads, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author Tom Wells once wrote, Profession of faith and possession of faith are not the same thing. Let us pray for the, uh, the, for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, and we thank you for your word delivered to us. I pray, Lord God, that it would have its effect in our lives. And I pray that, Father, the preacher would get out of the way of the work that you're doing and that your word would be clear and that your instructions would be open to us, Lord, and that, Father, we'd be moved to then hear and obey. I pray, Father, you'd be glorified in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as you know, we have, for those of you who've been here, Last week, we finished up chapter 11 in our series uh, on Romans titled, The Power of the Gospel. And if you've been for any, here for any length of time, you'll recognize that chapter 11 is the end of Paul's theological exposition of the gospel. Because Paul usually writes his letters in two parts. First is typically theology, or what it is that you need to know. And then the second part is application, which is what do you need to do with what you need to know. And so chapters 1 through 11 is the theological part, and that theological exposition uh, is of what the gospel is, you know, how the gospel works and the blessings the gospel gives and the unshakable hope the gospel provides to those who trust in him. Right? That was part one. Part two begins with chapter 12. And in chapters 12 through 16, Paul will begin to talk about how we are to live in light of the gospel. Now that we know that we are saved by grace through faith, how now that we know, you know, that all things work together for the good for those who love God, now that we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, how are we then to live? How are we then to act toward God? And how are we to treat other people? How are we to live even in the community of other believers now that we know these things? In the last half of Romans, Paul will address the practical application of our theology. Uh, By the way, the 
The point of theology isn't simply to know theology. The point is, is that it shapes how we see the world and ultimately how we live our lives. And so that application part is just as important as the theological part. Right Now, with that, after 61 sermons, over a year and a half, we, we wrapped up chapter 11 and the theological part last week. And now the application part lays ahead of us. And I, I spent some time thinking about this and studying about it and, and how to really kind of jump off into this new section because there is a lot to talk about. Uh, I don't want to go verse by verse, just one tiny verse at a time, but, but I mean, there is a lot to talk about, even in just the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. And so I began to work through and work on a message, but, but every time I did, I felt like I was bumping my head because I felt like before we get to the application, there's still something that we need to address. There's still something that, that needs, I think, just a little more explanation. Because before we move on and how we ought to live you know, toward the world in light of the gospel, I feel we need to spend a little more time thinking about what it really means to believe the gospel, what it means to, to respond to the call of the gospel, what it means to be saved by grace through faith in Christ. Because to my chagrin, this is where it seems so many people around us begin to fall down. This, for some reason, is the place that so many people just seem to get wrong. Some people will hear the theology and say amen, and, and, and those same people who, you know, who, who are, want to live out the Christian life and do the external things, right, like feed the hungry and clothe the naked and forgive those who wrong them and go to church. But for some reason, they will still miss the meaning of what it means to believe the gospel. After 11 years of preaching the gospel, it amazes me how many people just don't understand what it means to have saving faith. In fact, yesterday I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and this is a man that I know and respect, and I've known him for decades. This man is actually one of my oldest friends, knew me a long time before I was a Christian. I saw him yesterday, had a chance to catch up with him, and I told him that he was doing some really good things for a lot of people. He's a, he's a very gracious man, and he does the work that he does impacts hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in a positive way. I mean, he, you know, by all outward appearances, is a good man. And I told him, you're doing some really good stuff. And he said to me the most bizarre thing. He says, I'm just trying to get in the door upstairs. And then he says, say a prayer for me. And when you get, if you get there before I do, just make sure that you keep the door open so I can make it in. And, and as if I have more influence with God than he does. As if because I'm a pastor, I have some special anointing that gives me the keys to heaven. But I leaned over and I just said, hey, repent and believe the gospel. And then rest in Christ, because it's not about what you do, it's about what Christ has done. And he smiles at me, but he looks at me as if I just said some strange, new, weird thing that he's never heard before. But I've shared the gospel with him in the past. I've told him, you know, the, 
what we do, the things that we accomplish is the fruit of our salvation, not the root of it. Repent and believe the gospel. All right. But the problem is he still thinks like, he needs to do something to be right with God. And, and the thing is, is he's not alone. Seriously, if you just take a moment with the people in, around you in your life, just ask them, what does it mean to have a relationship with God? What does it mean to be saved? And you will find people who've gone to church their whole lives and people who haven't, their answers are going to be the same. There are people that think that, 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 that their Christian faith, you know, is about what they do. There are a lot of people who, that you know, right? They know some things about the Christian faith and they know some things about Jesus, but they simply don't understand the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel. They fail to recognize that they don't have to do anything to make God love them, no matter how hard they try. And on the other hand, there are others who oversimplify the gospel to the point that it becomes ineffective. There are people who literally believe if you just pray some magic prayer at one point in your life, no matter what your life looks like, you have been saved. They say that, you know, all you need to do is pray the sinner's prayer and invite Jesus into your heart. You just have to have some emotional response or emotional experience in your life. And, and there are people in this community who are worshiping in churches this very moment that believe that all they have to do is just confess someone named Jesus and, and then you're part of God's family, even if you don't understand who Jesus is. Even if your understanding of Jesus is, 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 is not even true. Well, and, and there are people that will even defend them and say, well, they say they love Jesus. They say that they believe in Jesus. What I've come to terms with is the fact that, in, that there are still people, a lot of people who either don't know and don't understand how to respond to the gospel in faith, right? or they think they do, but still just as uninformed. There is a disconnect somewhere, and it doesn't matter how religious people are. It doesn't matter how long they've been in church. It doesn't matter how good they, they think that they are to other people. There's, there's something that continues to get in the way. And this is important to me because my job, I want you to hear me, is not to make brilliant theologians. My job is not to make you the nicest people in the world. My job is not to mobilize you so that you go out and do good with your fellow man. I mean, those are things and byproducts that, that ought to follow, right? But that's not... What my primary job is, my job is to help you to understand the gospel so that you believe and are truly saved. And then my job is to help you to be equipped to go out into the world and not simply just do good things for other people, but that you can, can come to these people and share with them the glorious truth of the gospel so that they can hear it and actually believe it and come to real saving faith. And so in light of that, what I wanted to do today is just take a short break from Romans and spend just a little time looking at the scriptures and looking at an example of someone who, who comes face to face with Jesus, who knows Jesus, someone that has a good theology of Jesus, and someone was even in church and even acknowledged Jesus' power and lordship, but still didn't have saving faith. I want to share with you an example so that, so that we can see that saving faith isn't right, something that we do. 
I want to share with you what saving faith is not so that you can see what it is, so that we can be convinced, all of us, in our hope, and so that we can then also then take that hope and share it with others around us. True faith that brings people into the kingdom of God. And so again, let's look at Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And it reads, And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Right Now, for context, what we need to recognize is this is very near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness a message of what? A message of repentance. Right? And he was baptizing people who repented in preparation for the coming Messiah. Now, John didn't save anybody, right? And their baptism didn't save anybody, but it was preparation for the one that was going to come, that was Jesus Christ, right? And then Jesus himself went out. This obscure man from Nazareth showed up and was baptized by John. And Jesus was baptized not for the repentance of his sins because he was sinless. Instead, he was baptized to identify with us as he said, this is to fulfill all righteousness. And then immediately after his baptism, we were told that he went into the wilderness 40 days and was tempted by the devil. And then right after that, Jesus begins his public ministry. And Mark tells us that he began preaching the good news and declaring the time is at hand, or literally the time is now. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. Those are the words right from the mouth of Jesus himself. He preached the good news and called people to respond to the good news. And that response was repentance and faith. They were to respond by repenting and turning from, <clears throat> from their sin and their self-righteousness and then believing the good news of Christ and trusting him. And then right after Jesus begins his public ministry, he begins to... Um, he goes to the Sea of Galilee where he calls his first four disciples, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. And they go to Capernaum from there. This is a city on the north shore of Galilee, and it was the home of Peter. And, and really, this was the place of Jesus' first ministry headquarters. And while they were there in Capernaum, on a Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples went to the synagogue to worship, which was the custom of observant Jews. On Saturday, they would gather in the synagogue for worship, which included the reading and the exposition of the scriptures. Similar, by the way, to, to the way that Christian worship services are. Not exactly the same, but there was similarities. In fact, the way that we, we worship as a church has its roots in that. But notice that Jesus not only went to the synagogue, he actually taught that Sabbath. Jesus was invited to speak which means that Jesus actually was seen already by many people at the early part of his ministry as a very well-respected rabbi. He was somebody who was seen as a knowledgeable teacher. And, and, and what Jesus, what, what, it, what it tells us that Jesus' message, the gospel message, was really beginning to get around and it was resonating with people. People wanted to hear this teaching along with the, the, the teaching of John the Baptist before him. And so there, there must have been a certain level of excitement to to hear Jesus speak. And it says on that Sabbath, Jesus didn't disappoint them because it's, as it says, and they were astonished by his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now the word astonished here actually is better expressed as shocked. 
They were a little bit taken aback. Jesus' message was shocking to them. How many of you have ever listened to a sermon or a message that, that actually just kind of shocked you or hit you like a sledgehammer? Come on. I know I have. In fact, if, if you've ever listened to Paul Washer's shocking youth message, you know what I'm talking about. It's like one of the most listened to messages uh, on the entire internet. I mean, the video, video quality is not very good, but the message really is a tough one. It is, it is really convicting. It's a kind of message that kind of punches you right in the gut, and it really causes you to think through and examine the scriptures and, and even examine your own heart at times. In fact, I just listened to another sermon uh, by, by Paul uh, that was really challenging to me yesterday. It was one that really just kind of hit me right here. And it's the kind of the same idea here, but only greater. Jesus spoke with, with clarity and he spoke with passion, but most importantly, he, spo he spoke as one with authority, which is, which is what they said. This people, he spoke with one who has authority. And the thing that we need to realize is the rabbis and the teachers of the law at that time were known for, for being great expositors of the text and they were known for their, for their intellect, and they were, they were known for their ability to even speak from memory. But these men didn't ever speak from their own authority. They would lean on the authority of other teachers and of the scriptures and traditions, and even their own reason, but they never really kind of spoke from their own authority. But when Jesus spoke, he spoke as one who had authority. Now, Mark doesn't go into the context or or the content of what Jesus was saying, only that he had what he said was powerful enough to, to shock them. And they declared that they'd never heard anyone preach this way, and they'd never seen anybody exercise the, the authority he's using. And this message was so powerful and authoritative that it brought Jesus into immediate conflict with the spiritual forces of darkness. By the way, the proclamation of the word always brings us into conflict with the world of darkness. The truth always brings us into conflict with, the, with the, the spiritual forces of darkness. But especially here, Jesus literally was face to face with someone from that dark world. And immediately it says, there, were, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus preaching a message, and immediately there was a man in the synagogue that was demon-possessed. That's what it means for him to have an unclean spirit. And understand, the Bible is clear on this point, right? This is not simply a man who is really, really evil. This is not a man who has a psychological condition. Many in the modern Christian world want to presuppose, you know, some type of mental issue. Oftentimes, we see people who struggle with really deep, emotional traumas, especially those who are really evil, and we just want to attribute it to some psychological issue, but that there are oftentimes more work than we can imagine. This was not a man suffering from depression or, or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. This was a man possessed by a demon. And, 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 and so it's understand, this is not a metaphor. This is not some emotional condition or even a spiritual fable. This is a record of a real encounter that Jesus had with someone who was demon-possessed which means the unvarnished truth is this. Demons do exist. Again, people in our postmodern and post-enlightenment world want to deny that, and they just don't want to believe that there is a devil or, or even hell. 
And so they try to reject the supernatural and they try to write off texts like this as allegory and spiritual myths. But when you read the text, especially in context, what you understand is this must be a historical real event. Jesus, the son of the living God, came face to face with a man who was possessed by someone who was spiritually evil. And so demons do exist and they do influence the world around us. But notice it says that this demon was a man, was in a man, and that man was in the synagogue. Jesus didn't meet this demon in a bar. He didn't encounter this demon in a pagan temple somewhere. He didn't encounter this demon near a place of ill repute or even on the streets. This demon was in a man gathered with some other men in a house of worship. which means the demon was basically in church. Now, this is important because this man was already in the synagogue. In all likelihood, he was probably a member of that local community and assembly, and he probably had been there before. And he probably performed the outward rites and worship rituals. He was, but he was demon-possessed nonetheless. And, and, and by the way, no one knew that he was. Otherwise, they would have kicked him out. Otherwise, they would have removed him. So what does that tell us? It tells us that a person, just because a person goes to church, and just because a person who express, expresses a religiosity, and just because a person's even very loud and vocal and zealous and devout, and he does religious things and says religious phrases, doesn't mean that they actually have a relationship with God. I think that this is I think this is something that the world around us is blind to. There's a tendency even in American culture to see people who are religious or do religious things and just immediately believe that they have a relationship with God. Just because a person comes to church every Sunday, right, and sings with all their heart and lifts up their hands right, and gets all emotional and cries and comes forward to the altar, just because they do religious things doesn't mean that they belong to Christ. And this is critical for us to recognize. Salvation is, is not about our church attendance or membership. Salvation is about faith in and reliance upon Christ and Him alone and His finished work on the cross. It's about repentance and faith. As Jesus declared, you repent of your sin and your self-righteousness and everything you do to try to save yourself and earn God's love. You repent of that. And you turn from that and put your faith in Jesus, in Him alone. You hold on to Christ alone. And yes, we should, by the way, we should gather as a church family regularly and faithfully. In fact, the Scriptures call us to that. And you should worship God with all your heart. And you should express your love and devotion to God. And some people are going to be moved to tears. And some people are going to lift their hands and we praise the Lord for them. And some of you will stand and, and won't and you'll just be very silent. And that's okay too. We're called to engage and worship God. But we must remember that those things are the outward working of our faith and not the cause of it. And just because a person appears to be a believer or seems to be spiritual and says all the right things doesn't mean that they're actually part of the family of God. You, you can do all the religious things that you want and get all 
all emotional and claim the Christian title, but still not actually know him. Jesus encountered this demon-possessed man in a house of worship. And notice what happens next. And he, the demon, cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus preaches a powerful message, and the demon-possessed man comes and he confronts Jesus and cries out, what do you have to do with us? Now, this is a weird expression, but the, the gist of it is this, is what do you want with us? Or even better yet, the expression really leads to, why don't you just leave us alone? Is really what the, the root of what the Greek means. Because the demon knew why Jesus had come. He came to do battle with the enemy, our great arch enemy. And he was scared and he, right? And, and that was reflected in what he says next. Have you come to destroy us? This demon knew that Jesus came to put an end to the spiritual forces of darkness. And he knew that Jesus would ultimately destroy evil in the world. And so he was scared. And in fact, the question he asked is, have you come to destroy us? Is better rendered as, right? You've come to destroy us, haven't you? Right? It's more of an accusation than it is a question. And so this expression of fear and anxiety on the part of the demon, right? he's afraid because what, what he is saying is, you're the one that's to come. Why don't you just leave us alone? I know you've come to destroy us, but just leave us alone, Jesus of Nazareth. You see, the demon understands Jesus coming in the world means something big is about to happen. And he realizes that this means ultimate doom for him. He knows that his time is limited and he is terrified. But he also reveals something important. First is the fact that the demon knows Jesus. This demon knows who he is. And he knows his name and he knows a lot about him. Notice he says, what do you need to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth. I know who you are, he says. The Holy One of God. This demon knows Jesus' name. Just let that sink in. He knows where Jesus is from. He knows his history. And he doesn't just know about Jesus. He knows him. He understands who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus is not just some guy from a little town in Nazareth. He knows that, that he is not just some teacher or rabbi. He knows, he declares, he is the Holy One of God, the Anointed One. Even knows that Jesus is God in the flesh. You see, not only does Jesus, he know Jesus, the demon has a high theological view of Christ, higher than everyone else in the room probably at the time. He recognizes Jesus' divine nature. He knows that, that this is not just some created being, but this is the eternal Son of God. And he says, I know you. You're the Holy One of God. You may look like some rabbi from a backwater town, but you were the very Son of the living God. This demon theologically knew Jesus, and he also knows why Jesus came in the world. Not only did he recognize him, but he understands the reason why he came. 
Jesus came to set things right. He came to set the captives free. He came to make things new and to undo the curse and put an end to the reign of darkness that has been in the world since that first sin. And that's why he's worried. He knows that Jesus is the king and the king is coming into the world and the kingdom comes with him and that one day judgment is soon to follow. That's why he says, if you come to destroy us, He knows that Jesus will be the judge, and he knows that Jesus will come and put an end to the enemies of of his father, and the devil himself will be cast in the lake of fire. It's a foregone conclusion. He understands Jesus' role as Savior and judge, and he acknowledges Christ's power. Have you come to destroy us is a recognition that Jesus has the power to do just that. The demon understands and acknowledges that Jesus is all-powerful and there's nothing he can't do. That's a high view and a high theology of Jesus Christ. Jesus has the power to destroy this demon and he knows it. And Jesus even demonstrates that power in the next verse. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Now, the demon understood and acknowledged Jesus' power, but even more, he had to submit to Jesus' authority. He obeyed, even unwillingly, Jesus' command. Whether he wanted to or not, he's compelled to submit to the power and the command of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, shut up and come out of him, and the demon did just that. And the thing that we need to see here is that Jesus didn't have to perform a crazy ritual. He didn't have to spend two hours in prayer preparing for that moment. He didn't have to put on any weird clothes. He didn't have to have any objects or holy water or recite some incantation. Jesus just said, shut up and get out. And the demon had to obey him. The demon submitted to Jesus' authority and was cast out. Which again was shocking to everyone else in the synagogue. In fact, Mark says, and they were amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Jesus demonstrated for this gathering his power and authority. He demonstrated he has the authority to not just teach the word, but he has the power to proclaim the word and to cast out demons. As one commenter said, Jesus' word presented with sovereign authority permitted neither debate nor theological reflection. Jesus spoke with absolute authority, and it was clear, so clear, that even the darkest of dark creatures had to recognize it. Jesus is the sovereign king of all things, and he reigns over all of mankind and over all the spiritual forces of darkness and over all of creation. I mean, this reminds us of what Jesus said In Matthew 28, 18, before he gives us the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Right? That right there is worth reflecting on and spending time thinking about just by itself. All authority. All authority. Every authority. 
It's all-inclusive. Every authority over all of creation, all of the physical world and the non-material world, it's all been given to Christ. Jesus is the sovereign reigning king, and this demon understood that and had to obey him. Which then drives me to why I want to share this text with you again today. As we think about the gospel and the implications of the gospel and what it means to really be saved by grace through faith, there's a question I think that we need to reflect on. And that is, what's the difference between this demon and, and someone who claims to follow Christ? Besides the fact that one's an immaterial being and the other one's a material being, I mean, really philosophically and, and biblically, what's the difference? And for some, it might be a silly question, but, but the question, I think, helps us to see the disconnect for so many people because this demon had an encounter with the king of kings and his reaction was to fear Christ. He recognized that there was a coming judgment and, and that he would pay dearly for his rebellion against God and he knows he's doomed, he knows he's desperate, and he's helpless like all sinners but still does not move to faith. All of mankind is helpless, and we're all just as desperate. If, if we die in our sins, we're going to face the same wrath and judgment of God. That's the truth that, that I think sometimes we just forget to think about or talk about. The same judgment that the, the demon will. When you look at Revelation, the first one to go into the lake of fire is, is the enemy, but then those who are not in Christ follow with him. Not, as, not, not to be tortured by him, but to be cellmates with him. So what's the difference between the believer and him? And I'm not trying to be cute here because there is a difference. But the truth is, the way many people approach the gospel and the way that they approach Christ really makes them no better off. I mean, think about this. The demon knows who Jesus is. He knew Jesus. And, and, and this is important because many people equivocate salvation with just simply knowing Jesus. They, they will ask, do you know Jesus Christ? As if just simply knowing some facts and knowing the person or knowing the name brings a person to salvation. But understand, just knowing Jesus better isn't the answer. Again, this demon knew him and knew very well that he was still doomed. Also notice that the demon had a high biblical view of Christ. The demon had a high theology of Jesus. He recognizes his divinity. He acknowledges the incarnation. He acknowledges that Jesus is the judge. And he acknowledges that Jesus has power. The demon had a very high view of Christ, higher than a lot of Christians or people who call themselves Christians today. But the thing is, is simply having the right theology doesn't, isn't what, what saves you. Okay. Knowing all the right answers to a theology quiz does not bring you into the family of God. Now, don't misunderstand me, because theology is important. And what we, right? And you can't be saved by a Jesus you don't really know. And what you believe about Jesus is critical 
And what you believe about the gospel is crucial. And, and the Christian life is founded on sound theology. Knowing God is the foundation of our, our faith. But that's itself is not what saves you. As James says, you believe that God is one, referring to the Shema. You believe that God is one. You do well. It's good to have good theology. Then he says, even the demons believe and shudder. You see, this is important because many people believe that you're saved simply because you just acknowledge some truths and believe the right things about Jesus. But believing in the Trinity and in the incarnation and the divinity of Christ is not what brings you into the family of God. You must believe those things, but that's not what brings you into the family of God. And notice not only does the demon know Jesus and have a high theology Jesus, but he submits to Christ's authority. He obeyed the command of Jesus because he had to. Jesus said, shut up and get out. And that's exactly what he did. I know every mama in the world would love to have that power at times, right? Even the demons obey Jesus. Some people think that, that obedience is the key to salvation doing what Jesus says, submitting to the authority, keeping the rules, following the law. But, but that's exactly what the demon did. And he's still damned. He was even forced and compelled to obey. Obedience to the commands of Jesus is important. I want you to hear me. We should follow his commands. We should seek to follow his instructions. We should walk in holiness. It should be a part of our day-to-day -day lives to grow towards holiness. But that is not... What saves you? Now, all of this should cause us to stop and reflect on the implications of this because if knowing Jesus and who he is isn't enough and having the right theology of Jesus isn't enough and submitting to his authority and being obedient is enough, then what is the difference between that demon and someone who truly believes? What's the difference that makes a person saved and the demon and a false convert not saved? We know it's not church attendance or Bible study attendance, or the fact that people tithe, or that even that they're really good people and compassionate to their neighbors. It's none of that. The diff what is the difference between a believer and a demon? That's an important question for us to really have the answer to. This vile creature, again, seemed to check off all the boxes. He knew Christ, had a high view of him, and did what, what he was told to do. Why? Are we saved and not him? Why are we saved and not unbelievers? The difference, brothers and sisters, is, as we've said multiple times, is the grace of God. Right? And what Jesus said when he proclaimed the good news. The time is now. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. The difference is by the grace of God Repentance and faith. Right? If we could just master that one truth, church family, if we, that could be the truth that we hold out in hope to other people. The demon did not have the capacity to repent of his sin and put his faith in Christ. He wouldn't and couldn't repent of his rebellion against God. Even facing the prospect of his own destruction, he wouldn't repent and turn away from his rebellion. rebellion toward God, like so many non-believers. 
even some that acknowledge God's existence, they simply refuse. They won't repent. They won't turn from their old life and, and, and turn towards God in faith. They love their sin too much. They love their self-righteousness too much, even if they pray some prayer. Even if they acknowledge the name of Jesus with their lips, the difference between that demon who is damned and those who, who receive eternal life are those who respond by the grace of God to Jesus' call to repent and, and believe, to repent from sin and self-righteousness and believe the gospel and trust in Him and Him alone. That is the difference. And so what that tells us is, is if you know who Jesus is and believe the right things about Jesus and you're obedient to a list of rules, but you don't turn from your self-righteousness and you don't turn from your willful rebellion, and if, you, and if you don't take all of your hope and your trust and throw it upon Christ and Him alone, then you're not part of the kingdom of God. You're not saved. You must repent and believe the gospel. But the problem is nobody wants to talk about repentance. Everybody hears that word and they get upset and they get frustrated. Few people want to talk about the real gospel. And because of that, we have a false understanding of what it means to save, be saved. So many people have a, have a false understanding of salvation. And it's not a criticism. I'm leveling against them. I'm not making an accusation. It's a broken heart that declares that. As a pastor who stands and hears the words of Jesus, when he says to the one who thought that they were in the kingdom, saying, depart from me, I never knew you. But Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? And didn't we do that? And didn't we do this? And didn't we do that? And he says, away from me, I never knew you. As a pastor, those words tear me apart. Because there's so many people who don't really understand what it means to have a relationship with God. There are so many people who pray a formula prayer, which is called a sinner's prayer, and they just believe because they said that, that they're saved. And then you ask them, are you saved? Yes. How do you know? Well, I just prayed this prayer at some point in my life. As if reciting those words or feeling strong emotions will bring them to redemption. Brothers and sisters, even, even atheists feel strong emotions. I listened to a man who rejected his faith talk about how he had a religious experience and he tried to explain it in a way in psychological terms, but he still believes that he felt something. Now understand, I think praying to God and asking to receive salvation is absolutely appropriate. I think that it's good to humble yourself before God and ask Him and come to Him in prayer to receive saving faith. But it's the prayer, the, the prayer is not what saves you. Another teaching in the church that misses the mark is a teaching that if you'll just invite Jesus into your heart, you will be saved. Apart from the fact the Bible doesn't actually teach that. Right? It's simply just a misunderstanding of the text. Now, I understand the sentiment behind it. I think it's the, the, the sentiment is genuinely noble. We want to make it easy for people to come to Christ. We want 
And it's appropriate, by the way, for us to ask Jesus into our lives, by the way. It's appropriate to ask in prayer to receive Christ. It's appropriate to surrender and say, Jesus, come and take over. But the problem is that so many people don't actually know why they need him. Because we don't preach on the depravity of man and the horrendous nature of our sin and our need for repentance. And it's, it changes the underlying meaning of what it means to actually invite Christ into your heart. You see, the picture that's painted oftentimes in so many churches is a helpless Jesus who's just standing at the door knocking, quietly, please, please let me come in. And then you and your sovereign authority get to choose whether or not you're going to let Jesus in. Well, you know, Jesus, you make a really compelling case. I do believe that you love me because I love me too. And I do believe that you want what's best for me because I want what's best for me too. So come on in, Jesus. I invite you into my heart. It's not the gospel. The gospel is you were like this demon. You have rebelled against a holy and righteous and just God, the, the God that made you. You have sinned even before you knew what sin was. And you were broken, a helpless wretch. You were totally depraved. And, and you're not a good person who sometimes makes mistakes. You are a sinner capable of doing unspeakable things but it's the grace of God that's restrained you from being as bad as you want to be. Don't believe me? What would you do if you weren't restrained when that dude crosses over and cuts you off on the freeway? We don't do the things that we're capable of doing because the, the grace of God restrains us from being as bad as we, we can be. And because you're a sinner and because you are depraved, you're just like this demon. You face the prospect of God's judgment. And that demon knows what it means. It means destruction. It means being set apart from God for eternity because that's what rebels and sinners and demons deserve. That's why, that's what we are apart from Christ. And all you can do on your own is tremble in fear and hopelessness before a holy righteous judge because there's nothing you can do to fix it by yourself. But then God in his love, a love that's more unimaginable than we can possibly even fathom, God in his love and his grace, on his own will, by his own volition, by his own plan, came to the earth and became fully a man to identify with us and live the perfect righteous life that we were supposed to live, but we just can't do it. And then he voluntarily goes to the cross and on the cross exchanges place with us. Church family, that is a miracle that just is more than we can possibly appreciate that he exchanged places with you. He took upon himself your rebellion, your sin, all that hateful stuff that you have done, all those hateful thoughts you have thought, all the ugliness that you're capable of. He took all of that and then in return offers you complete, total, perfect righteousness. And then he hung there on the cross, slowly suffocating to death, experience, experiencing in his body the fullness of the wrath of God, the wrath that we deserve, the wrath that was, was reserved for you, the wrath of God. And he died the death that we rightly deserve. And then three days later, Jesus was resurrected as proof 
that the debt has been canceled, the debt has been paid, that Jesus, God in the flesh, by His power, has risen and He has has put under His feet both sin and death, and that He is the sovereign reigning King. And this Jesus doesn't lightly tap on the door. Please, no, He is out in the street declaring with a loud voice, It is finished! And the time is now. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. Come and be saved. And your response isn't to just invite Jesus into your heart. Your response ought to be to fall down on your face before Jesus and cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I am a wretched sinner. Forgive me, Lord, of my iniquities. I repent of my sin. I turn from my old life. I repent of this wretched self-righteousness thinking that I'm good enough. I repent of trying to save myself. Save me, Lord Jesus. I repent and believe the gospel. I take you at your word. I confess that I'm all that you say that I am. I confess that I'm a broken sinner and, and, and deeply broken I confess that I desperately need you. I believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he died for my sins and he gives me a righteousness I don't deserve. I believe that you rose him three days later and I believe that he's at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for me and I believe that one day he's coming back for me and he's going to set all things right. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the sovereign king and I don't Just ask Jesus to come into my heart. I beg you, Jesus, come into my life and take over. Come into my life and have your way in me. Mold me, shape me, change me in what you want me to be. Remove from me, even painfully remove from me what it is that you want to remove from me. Come into my life and take over and lead me in all that I say and do. I repent and believe the gospel and I'm I'm yours. That's the gospel. And that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. That's the difference between a believer and a demon. The demon knew that Christ, knew who Christ was personally, theologically, and was bound to obey, but he couldn't be saved because he was incapable of repenting and turning to Christ by faith. But you, by God's grace, have been given that ability to turn and believe. And it's such a glorious, glorious gift because it's all done by God. He is the one who decreed it. Christ is the one who paid for it. And the Holy Spirit is the one who comes and applies it to you. Jesus didn't come to just simply change your behavior and make you good, better people. He came to change your hearts. And that change of heart is exhibited, is exhibited in Repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone. And that is the response to the gospel message that Paul's been proclaiming. And that if we simply do that, all the promises that Paul had made about the blessings of the gospel are yours immutable. And you have a hope of an everlasting love with Christ. And then what do we do then in light of that? If you're not in Christ, repent and believe. Those are the words that I will keep saying for the rest of my life. 
I will say them so those to my church family. I will say them to my immediate family, to my extended family. I will say it to all my friends and all of my friends' friends and their friends too. And I'll say it to strangers and my neighbors and everyone I come in contact with, repent and believe the gospel. To those that are really religious and to those that are irreligious, to those who think they have all the answers and those who confess that they don't know very much, repent and believe the gospel. That's the essence of our response in faith. Turn from our old life and self-righteousness and turn to Christ and hold on to Jesus in Him alone, understanding there's not anything you're going to do that makes God love you. God loves you because Christ died for you and gave His life for you. Secondly, if you're in Christ, church family, rest in Christ, in the truth of what He's done for you. Yes, we're called to walk in holiness, but as a overflow and a byproduct of the salvation that he's given us. We rest in the truth that he has accomplished it for us. And then when we fall down and you do something really stupid and you realize and recognize, I have sinned and profaned the name of God again for the millionth and a half times. What do you do? Repent and believe the gospel. The same thing that saved you is what keeps you saved God enables you to continue to walk and turn back towards him. As Paul Washer says again, don't linger in the spiritual penalty box thinking that now that I've sinned, I've got to go hide from God. Turn to him immediately and then rest in his finished work because it's already been accomplished. And then church family, rescue the lost. This is the message they need to hear. They don't need to hear that if you'll turn to Jesus, he's going to pay your bills. If you turn to Jesus, you know, your grandma's going to get healed, right? They don't need to hear, you know what, if you're really, really good and you do really good things and become a church member that, you know, God's going to love you, they don't need to hear that. They need to hear the unvarnished gospel. You're a sinner who needs the salvation of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the message that we walk out of here with, the hope that we have to hold out to anybody, that anybody and everybody, no matter who they are, can come to Christ if they will just do what God by His grace has given them to do. Repent and believe. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. 